Well, yeah, see, we are continuing the series that we started a couple weeks ago called Our Core, looking at some of the core practices that have made up the church over the last 2,000 years and beyond, back all the way to our, our Jewish roots. And today, last week, we looked at confession and forgiveness. This week, we are looking at a subject, the subject of liturgies and creeds. Very exciting. Uh, I grew up in a church that wasn't liturgical, and I knew it wasn't liturgical because I had been to some Catholic weddings, and they were super long and super boring. And I knew not only that I wasn't liturgical, but that I didn't like liturgy. To me, as a kid, it felt cold and wooden and dead. And so I knew that not only was I not liturgical, but I didn't like liturgy. And yet, liturgy has marked the church since its beginning. For 2,000 years, the church has participated in it. So what is it that we are doing or that I perceive that wasn't right, that wasn't meaningful? So today we're going to look at the subject of liturgy. What is the word liturgy? What does it even mean? Well, it comes from the, the Greek word liturgia, which simply means public works or, or works of the people. Dictionary.com defines liturgy this way. It says a form, a formulary according to which public religious worship, especially Christian worship, is conducted. A form. Well, my church growing up certainly had a form that it followed each week. I mean, every single week, it was either Lois Barrett or Connie Bixby that played the organ prelude every week. It was going to be one of the two. And then we always had announcements and an opening hymn, and then some old guy got up and prayed. And then we sang a praise song that was either, you know, Twilight Paris or Steve Green every week. And then there was an offering during which uh, Becky Folkstead, mother of our own Kurt Folkstead, would get up and do special music, or my dad would play something on trumpet. And then we'd do like a responsive reading. There was a form that we followed every single week. I mean, once a month we did communion, so the form changed a little bit, and the songs changed from week to week, but, but basically the form stayed the same. Well, that's liturgy. I mean, perhaps not very high church liturgy, but that's a form of liturgy. My church was liturgical, even if I didn't know it. Even if I spent most of the liturgy crawling around under the pew and being warned that I was going to get a spanking after church. I got so many spankings on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> it's true. Liturgy simply means the form, the order in which we worship. And so if you grew up in the church, there's almost a 100% chance that you grew up in a liturgical church. Your liturgies might have looked different than some. And so today we want to look at liturgies and creeds, see what they do, why we use them, and maybe why we need to embrace them more than we do. There's a place to write this in your notes. Liturgies and creeds are biblical. The Bible is filled with creedal statements outlining beliefs about who God is, about who Jesus is, about how salvation works. In Deuteronomy 6, God gives Israel a creed. A creed that was absolutely central to their faith. A creed that to this day is repeated by observant Jews every morning and every night at festivals. It's the first creed that a jewish child is taught and for many jews it is the last words they want to utter from their lips on the day that they die it's a creed called the shema the opening line goes like this hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and that's just the opening lines the whole shema goes on for paragraphs it's something like 600 words long and they repeat it every morning and every night, the New Testament church, which is born out of Judaism, 
would have practiced the Shema as well as other Jewish creeds. And on top of that, they added many of their own creeds that we see evidenced in the New Testament. They created these creeds reminding themselves of their core beliefs, reminding themselves of how their faith had been expanded in this new Christianity. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, Corinth, passes on one of these early creeds. Reading from 1 Corinthians, he says, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. We read that as scripture, but the truth is Paul was establishing in that a creed that had been passed on to him and that he then passed on to them, these core truths. Many of these core truths were formed sort of in response to controversy. New teaching that was popping up and, and saying that they had a new understanding of who God was. And to that, Paul and the other writers of the epistles wrote back in response with creeds. Oftentimes, in some translations, you actually see where they are quoting an, an external source, an external creed by an indentation of the text. So I want to look at, for instance, one of the clearest examples of this is from Philippians 2, sometimes called the Christ hymn. Paul wrote, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. And do you see how it's indented on verse 6? That's an indication that what he's quoting here is not original material. He is quoting an external document that they recognized. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And he goes on to list these attributes of who Christ is. And while the apostle wrote these in his letter, he wasn't quoting the Old Testament as often they did. Here he's actually quoting, like I said, an outside document, a creed that had been agreed upon, a truth that these people would have known. He's writing to them these words that they would have recognized as a known document. Paul does it again in, in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith, indent. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Now, we don't know if these words that he was quoting were from a song that they all sang or from a creed that they spoke. We don't know exactly how they used it in their liturgy, but there's a lot of evidence that would say this was an early creed. And when he's referencing it to them, he's referencing something that they were already aware of, even in far-off churches. What Paul is referencing is a creed, and for Paul, it was authoritative. Michael Byrd, in the book, What Christians Ought to Believe, writes this, whether sung, read, or recited, it certainly lends itself to a creedal function as it sets out what Christians believed about where Jesus came from, why he died, and why he should be worshipped. It functioned as a creed. I think for us as evangelicals, many of us in the room who grew up evangelical, creeds, for some reason, just kind of, like we don't like them. Like they just feel kind of yucky to us. Like maybe it feels too Catholic or it feels too formal or it feels too forced. Maybe we say my creed is no creed but Christ. All right, let's look at that. Or maybe we say my only creed is the Bible. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, right? Well, that's fine. I mean, it's a good book. It's the good book. But at some point you have to decide what the Bible actually says about certain things, about how it should impact how we think and how we act and how we trust and how we treat one another. At some point, you have to decide what the Bible has to say about who Jesus was and is and how it should impact our life today. And as soon as you start making decisions about what the Bible means, you're creating 
a creed, whether you realize it or not. So what are creeds? Again, let's look at dictionary.com to see what they have to say about creeds. Creed, a 90s band who thought they were hardcore but weren't, and whose lead singer always sounded like he was trying to swallow his old tongue while he sang a sound that shaped contemporary Christian music for generations. That is not helpful, guys. Is there another, a next one? Okay, here we go. Creed, a system of Christian or other religious belief or faith. Next. A formal statement of Christian beliefs, especially the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And then finally, a set of beliefs or aims which guides someone's behavior. Forming a creed is simply taking what the Bible says and making statements about what those statements mean and how they should impact our lives and then writing them down, codifying them and sharing them with others in the community so that those statements might be agreed upon and established as a standard or rejected and established as a heresy. But it's done in community with one another. Michael Byrd again says, what does the Bible say about God, Jesus, salvation, and the life of the age to come? When you set out biblical teaching in some formal sense, like in a church doctrinal statement, then you're creating a creed. You're saying, this is what the Bible teaches about X, Y, and Z. The statement, no creed but Christ, sounds great, but it's problematic for a number of reasons. It means no creed except what I think about Christ. It's not in community. And the problem with no creed except Christ is that a church, as one author said, a creedless church cannot long exist. Creeds help us to pass from generation to generation the core beliefs that we have. Israel knew this, and, and their children learned this creed. It was the very first creed they learned, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From the very earliest age, they learned this. We know this, too, in our lives, right? I mean, we are a creedal people, even if we don't recognize it. Most of us grew up reciting a creed every morning, but it wasn't the Shema. Anyone know what it was? The Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God. That's a creed. And most of us grew up saying it every single day, right? It's interesting, I think, that for many of us, probably creeds have not been a part of our religious life most of our lives. Many of us have probably never even used a creed in our own worship. And yet almost all of us at some point in our lives regularly pledged our allegiance to a flag. Don't write me emails. I love our flag and I love our country. It's an interesting juxtaposition. We do that because we want these core beliefs of who we are as a nation to survive to the next generation. So we teach it to our children. Biblical creeds function in the exact same way if we use them. It's what ties us to the past and what ensures our future as a people, as a people of God. It's a place to write this in your note. Liturgies and creeds unite us with the church throughout the world and also throughout history. There are something like 38,000 denominations in the world. We have found every possible way to divide as Christians. Right to categorize Christians. So what is it, it essentially that unites us? Well, a lot of it comes from these creeds. I was talking to Maria Eiberg, who many of you know, on Friday night up at the basketball tournament in Brainerd. And Maria grew up Catholic. And she said she remembers as a child that when she went to Mass on Saturday night, 
She knew that the words that they were reading, the words that they were hearing, were the exact same words that were being spoken in every Catholic service around the world. And there was something that even as a child she perceived as being kind of boring and, and, and forced or whatever. But there was also something that even as a child she thought was beautiful. To know that when she lifted her voice, she was lifting it with millions of other believers around the world speaking these truths. For us, for non-Catholics, with the exception of maybe Easter Sunday, where we all celebrate resurrection, there's really nowhere in our faith tradition where non-liturgical churches ever get to experience that. Like the one exception is he is risen, he is risen indeed, right? Where we all do it on Easter. But pretty much any other Sunday of the year, we are independent. Exactly. In liturgies and in creeds, we get to engage in worship that's been celebrated all over the world. These are things on which the church does agree and has agreed upon for generations. Liturgies and creeds safeguard, it's a place to write this down, safeguard us against our infatuation with the new and improved. Chris said it the first week, new is not always improved. On so many issues today, I hear Christians express some sort of sentiment like, I just, I love to worship God in a way that's meaningful to me. Okay. Or, uh, I, 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 just, I just don't think that a loving God would, and then insert subject, whatever that is. I don't think a loving God would. Or, I worship God and I love God, you know, and I think there's so many ways to find God. Okay? And all of these statements are sort of based on, because that's what I think. That's my version of what I've come to on my own. It's sort of the natural outcome of my only creed is Christ. When I get to define whatever Christ means. For some reason, we're reluctant to look back at how the church has interpreted Scripture for thousands of years and how they, who were no less clever than we are today, addressed these issues, what they agreed upon and passed down, and what they rejected as heresy. It would be like the Supreme Court of the United States today basically ignoring the Constitution and ignoring legal precedent and saying, so, what do the nine of us think about this issue? Let's just make a decision. <laughs> of course not. They have to go back and look at what the Constitution says, but then also look at 200 years of history, a legal precedent. I shouldn't have brought up politics at all. <laughs> 200 years of precedent, and only informed by those matters can they then even begin to decide on a matter today. And yet that is what we tend to do on a lot of these issues in our faith. What do we think now without critically looking back at what 2,000 years of history has said? We love the new and we tend to think the old is bad simply because it's out of date. C.S. Lewis, the mid-century theologian, called this chronological snobbery. He, wrote, he defined it this way. As an uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. It's bad simply because it's old. But looking back, looking back at 2,000 years of church history and thousands of years back further than that could form an integrative grid in helping the believer today examine the world today through the traditions and beliefs and creeds that helped God's people maintain gospel priorities throughout all of history. We have all those cases we can look back at. Creeds serve as this rubric against which we can hold up new ideas to look at the precedents that were established in the past and to ensure that our new ways 
are not so out of line with the old ways that we've abandoned our core together. We must look at the patterns and the practices of the churches that came before us. And so today, we are going to do something really fun. We are going to look at the history of liturgy. Woo! (laughs) If you think liturgy is boring, just wait till you hear the history of liturgy. (laughs) I want to look back at just a couple of liturgies that we've seen throughout history. And there's not a lot of detail that's given in the New Testament of exactly how they worship. We see elements of what they did in gathering together. We see these references to creeds, but we never see a church bulletin from the New Testament church, right? But early Christians, we know as Jewish worshipers, would have maintained a great deal of their Jewish liturgy of worship. And other church texts from the earliest days of the church begin to define how the people of worship when they came together. For instance, we know that as early as the second century, they were already dividing their worship services into what they called the liturgy of the word, which was the teaching and the Bible study and, and the songs and all those things, and the liturgy of the upper room, which would have been like the communion portion of the services. We know as early as the second century that those liturgies were established from extra-biblical texts. And today what I want to do is look at the form, the liturgy of some of the very earliest Roman Catholic churches and see how it informs us for today. So let's look at this. We have it up on the screen here. A liturgy, I know it's kind of small because there's a lot included in it, frankly. This is the Roman Catholic liturgy kind of pre-1570 before the the Council of Trent. And And it goes back to some of the earliest days. They would start off this service, the liturgy of the word with a choral introit. And a choral introit um, is is essentially an opening song that originally would have been sung by the priest, but then as the church grew, it was sung by a choir who was behind a screen so they couldn't be seen. And it was sung to kind of call the people to worship. But it was sung either by the priest or the choir, by the professionals, never by the people themselves. And then they would go into the Kyrie, the service which opened with this call to worship of this magnificent and glorious God. Then in the face of that glorious God said, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. And again, this was sung by the priest or by the choir. Then we'd go into the Gloria. The Gloria was a song sung by the professionals, echoing the words sung by the angels in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest. And then the priest would give a salutation. The Lord be with you and also With you. Well done. Some of you are Catholic out there. Yes. Then we would get to the time in the service called the collect. And this isn't collection, like the offering. This is collect as in collective. This is the people in one voice praying a prayer together that expressed some characteristic of who God was and then made a petition to God in response to that character who he was and then praised him in response to that character that they petitioned. At any rate, here's an example of a very old collect that may sound familiar. Almighty God, to whom all hearts and minds are open, by whom all desires are known and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. Does it sound familiar? We read words very similar to that last week that have been adopted and changed slightly, but it's, that's the root of these. They go back to the very earliest times of the church. Then it was time for instruction. A passage from both the Old Testament and the New Testament was read. This ensured that the entire word of God was honored on a weekly basis all the time, all of Scripture. Between the readings, there was an antiphonal chant that was done by the choir. A song called a gradual, uh, which is typically the singing of a psalm, was performed by the choir. Uh, and then to address the challenges of sort of the Old Testament picture of who God was, with the New Testament picture of who God was, they would typically sing a song called the 
oh, you Catholics know this, and I'm struggling. The Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. They wanted to highlight that there's a continuity between the old and the new. There's a continuity of God between all of Scripture and all of history. And then in response to that continuity, they sang the Alleluia. And by they, I mean the choir. Because none of the congregation is singing anything. They did their peace be with you and they read their collective prayer. That's their total role. And they sang Alleluia over and over and over. We simply praise God. And then there was a gospel reading. So we're back to the Bible. A gospel reading specifically focusing on the person and the work of Christ. And then finally, after all of that, we've gotten to the sermon. And this sermon wouldn't have been sort of the brief homily that you see in Catholic churches today. This would have been in-depth study, in-depth teaching, long, talking about how do we live lives of holiness in our context. And then after the sermon, they would have read the Nicene Creed or sung the Nicene Creed. Again, the priest or the choir would have done that as an affirmation of the faith, both to demonstrate the conformity of the sermon to the gospel truth and to bolster the people as they were sent out. Which leads us to the dismissal of non-communicants. Now, this was not the thanks for coming, drive safe. This was a dismissal for any of the children in the room or any of the unbaptized in the room to leave before communion so that they weren't a part of that second half of the service. After all of this, we're halfway through the service, right? And, oh, and by the way, almost all of this was in Latin, so they didn't understand much of any of it. And so six hours later, the service was done, and they all headed to Old Country Buffet for lunch. (laughs) How many of you are relieved that we don't do that every week? I mean, literally, that's halfway through, essentially, the service. And yet, there's real beauty to it. The value of both the Old and the New Testament, the weekly emphasis on the glory and the power of God, the regular confession before God and one another, the confession of our need for mercy, the weekly focus on the person of Christ and what the gospel actually accomplished, there's a lot that was beautiful, but there's also a few things that, that maybe could use some reform. Like I said, most of it was in Catholic. Oh, Catholic. Most of it was in Latin. That's the second time in two weeks I've accidentally inserted Catholic into it. Most of it was in Latin, so they didn't understand it. With the exception of the collect, the corporate reading of the prayer, most of the service was done by the professionals, the priests and the choir, on behalf of the people. The congregation basically worshipped through watching. The priest was at the center of the attention, and most of the time became the go-between between God and his people. And so in response to this, a young monk named Martin Luther, who we studied earlier this, this year, started the Protestant Reformation, calling for reforms in the church and accomplished some of those reforms. But for the most part, their worship still looked pretty Catholic. Often they still met in church buildings that had been Catholic churches, but to mark that they were different, they took the, the, the cross that appeared on the top of the steeple, they removed the cross and replaced it with a rooster <laughs> for some reason, right? I mean, that's kind of odd, right? I mean, what church do you guys go to? Oh, we go to the chicken church. Why, why a rooster? For, for reformers, the rooster was a symbol or a picture of God's grace to sinners. It was a reminder of Peter's failure, of Peter's denial. But then the fact that God restored him, that Jesus restored him and actually put him in leadership of the church. It was a way of marking that this church was not simply a church, but a gathering of sinners who were together communing with their Savior. It's why you still see roosters in many churches in Europe today and in many weather vanes today. It was a subtle change to the architecture that signified something much larger 
and how the reformers saw themselves as the church. And similarly, Luther went through and made changes to the Catholic liturgy of worship in, in these chicken-topped Protestant churches. Luther and the reformers wanted to change the focus of the worship. So in, in 1526, Luther introduced a new and improved liturgy that shared a lot of the elements of the Catholic liturgy, but also made some important changes. Let's look quickly at this. And I know it's in the center of the screen, so I'm going to be blocking for some of you. Liturgy of the, the Word is still there. That's what they still call it. And they still have an entrance into it. But now it's not the choir singing. It's not the priest singing. It's the people singing. Luther believed that we are priesthood of believers, all of us, that the church was meant to be participated in, engaged in. And so they, they open now with the priest singing, but with the congregation singing. And not in Latin, but in German. And then they still did the cry for mercy to a holy God, the Kyrie. They still had the Gloria. They still did the salutations, the, peace be with you and also with you, Lord be with you and also with you. They still did a corporate collect. But then there's an absence, you can see here, a space. The Old Testament reading and the antiphonal chant is gone. For Luther, he felt the Old Testament was just, was far too much emphasis on the law, too much emphasis on the judgment of God. He wanted instead to focus simply on the gospel message of what Christ had accomplished. And so you see that he goes directly to the apostle, uh, the epistle reading, and the gradual. The gradual still would have been an Old Testament psalm sung, but he was okay with that as long as he didn't get too judgy. From there, we ran, there's no alleluias, and we go right to the gospel reading, just like the Catholics, but now he's added the Apostles' Creed before the sermon and a sermon hymn. Again, the people went from not singing at all to now singing all the time. And the sermon hymn would have been a hymn that would have been a fairly new creation that, they was, that was tied to the theme of the sermon. And then they went into the sermon, and the sermon is the same, except Luther, for Luther, the sermon is always about the gospel. It's always about the provision of God to equip his people and to save his people. And so the Old Testament for Luther sort of further recedes into the background. It's sort of the origin story of the real story, the gospel. And then following the sermon, the people sing again. There's lots and lots of singing, the post-sermon hymn, and then he went into an exhortation. The dismissal is kind of removed. The exhortation instead is an encouragement to go and live this out. There's less emphasis placed on who's in and who's out and who can take communion and who can't. Because for Luther, he said, if they're here in worship, it's because of the conviction of their heart. Let them come to the table. I could be misquoting him there. I'm summarizing what I, what I read. <laughs> and then they too did the second part of the service, the liturgy of the upper room or communion. But it was much more of a celebration of sinners saved. And they did it every single time they gathered he made some changes, but it wasn't any shorter. This was still a very, very long service. And they all went to Chick-fil-A for lunch because Chick-fil-A is Christian chicken. <laughs> Luther, Luther and the Reformers then went on to make all kinds of changes, not just to the liturgy of the church or a cross on its steeple, but to the very architecture of the church buildings themselves, the placing the pulpit no longer up front and raised up above the congregation, but in the middle of the room to signify that we are all priests in this kingdom. Luther wanted everything about his church from the liturgy to the architecture to communicate the gospel, the complete gospel, maybe minus some of the Old Testament stuff. Luther knew that how we worship, the liturgies we use, whether we call them that or not, say a lot about us, about how we understand the gospel, how we understand God, how we understand our relationship with God. It's a place to write this in your notes. How we worship says a lot about who we worship. 
Brian Chappelle, in a great book called Christ-Centered Worship, says this. The order of worship, another way of describing the liturgy, conveys an understanding of the gospel. Whether one intends to or not, our worship patterns always communicate something. Even if one simply goes along with what is either historically accepted. That's the wrong spelling of accepted. We'll change that for the second service. (laughs) Either what is historically accepted or currently preferred. An understanding of the gospel inevitably unfolds. If a leader sets aside time for confession of sin, whether by prayer or by song or by scripture reading, then something about the gospel gets communicated. If there is no confession in the course of the service, then something else is communicated, even though the message conveyed may not have been intended. It's interesting. How we worship says a lot about who we worship. So what does our worship look like in most Christian, evangelical, American churches today? And what does it say about us? What does it say about how we understand the gospel? How we understand God? I want to look at our liturgy now in the modern evangelical liturgy. We don't call it the liturgy of the word anymore. We call it simply service order. Generally, there's an opening song and it's fun and upbeat. and gets you going. Right? And then there's announcements and more announcements and more announcements. And then there's a fast song, medium song, slow song. I was once at a, at a worship conference where I was told that the order of songs in a proper order of worship should go hand clapper to hand raiser to hand holder. <laughs> True story. And then we go to collections. We don't do collective prayer by and large. We do collective offering by and large. And then we go to a sermon that's inspiring And that's pretty much it. And we're done in under an hour. And we can all go to Pizza Ranch. Because Pizza Ranch is Christian pizza. And chicken. And a salad bar. And you can hear Chris Tomlin all the time. I know that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. But I think when you see these three up against each other, you can see that there's a whole lot that isn't there. We've kind of stripped away everything except for the songs and the teaching. Right? What about all of the other stuff? One of the biggest complaints that I heard as a kid about liturgy was that it was just all just rote. It was all just dead words that were being mindlessly recited. Well, we fixed that. We cut it all out. (laughs) Right? It can't become rote if it's completely absent. But it also can't become meaningful if it's completely absent. Ancient liturgy was built around this idea of trying to give a complete picture of the gospel, the whole gospel. I think oftentimes modern worship liturgy tends to be sort of a truncated version of the gospel. It's like liturgy light. Often our liturgy has more to do with an emotional experience than a robust gospel theology. It's about getting us going, getting us excited, and getting us in the room. Our liturgy has more to do with practical advice to how to get through life than worshiping the author and creator of life. I think often our liturgy in in our churches today, not necessarily here, but in many churches, our liturgy has more to do with us worshiping in a way that works for us than it has to do with worshiping in a way that works for God, in a way that God desires and wants and accepts. If one of the primary questions that I ask myself as a worship planner here at this church is, will people like it? Or if we do this, will people think it's weird? Maybe I'm not asking the right questions, right? 
If, if the primary drivers for our worship are entertainment value or inspiration for life or helpful advice for navigating tricky seasons and keeping it all under an hour so that we can get back to the real world, we might not be worshiping God. We might be worshiping ourselves or our needs, our desires. How we worship says a lot about who we worship. Josh Jones says this, if we don't plan with the gospel always in mind, we run the risk of trying to tell our own story and meeting our own needs instead of submitting ourselves to God's story and allowing him to meet the needs only he can. So an easy response is, so plan better worship services, Jason. Problem fixed. (laughs) Okay, I'll own that. (laughs) But if we're all in this together, it means that all of us need to be open to the idea that that things may change. We're not suddenly going to go to four-hour services full of all these different pieces. We're going to increasingly explore how do we make sure that we are always telling the whole story, the complete picture of who God is and what he has called us, that we are asking the question, what kind of worship does God want from us, not simply how do we feel better about the world at the end of the day? Does that make sense? And hopefully, as we've been going through this series, you can already recognize the ways in which we are already trying to build this and have been since the beginning of this church. Build these rhythms into the the, the practices that we have. Build into the songs that we choose, the seasons that we celebrate, the prayers that we included like last week as our collective prayer. Ways that we are already trying to build intentional rhythms. There's a place to write that in your note. Liturgies and creeds build intentional rhythms that help safeguard us against making it all about our own preferences. We want to regularly in our worship build rhythms that ensure we don't get off course, that we don't make it all about ourselves. Chris called them guardrails the first week that keep us on the right path. We believe that we need to look backwards to see the way forward, to see the trajectory that the church has been on and that we continue that trajectory The church calendar provides a tremendous amount of resources to us in this area, and we try to observe it throughout the whole year. It provides seasons like Advent, which help us see beyond the commercialization of Christmas. To build regular rhythms of confession and forgiveness in our services regularly, but then also on special services like the Ash Wednesday services coming up in a couple of weeks, where we can together receive the imposition of ashes, where we can together face our humanness, our need for God and salvation our need for reconciliation as we, get, as we start Lent together as a church. Lent, this whole season, which allows us to look inward and see our need for salvation, but also allows Easter to be more than just a pleasant interruption to our spring on one good Sunday where we, for some reason, celebrate eggs and bunnies and ham. Easter can be so much more than that if we've been on the journey of Lent together. Rhythms that draw on creeds that the church has spoken for millennia. Rhythms that draw on songs that get so much further back than whatever's hot on KTIS this week. Not dogging KTIS, they're awesome. I'm just saying we have like 2,000 years of greatest hits that we can draw from in our worship. Let's make sure we're doing that. We build rhythms that help to ensure that we are honoring all of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we're telling the whole gospel story. And that's ultimately the aim as followers of Christ, as witnesses to Christ, to tell the story and celebrate the story of God's interactions in this world. Liturgies and creeds help us tell the story, the whole 
gospel story, even the hard parts, even the boring parts, the whole gospel truth. Brian Chappelle says, the structure of a church's liturgy inevitably tells us its understanding of the gospel story. We want to be a church that is telling all of the story and inviting people to experience all of the story. So we are going to continue to explore how do we better integrate these practices that have defined the church for 2,000 years into our practices as a community. Let me pray for us as we do. God, we thank you that you've given us your word that we can look at, uh, these, these practices that you define for us, but that you've also given us each other. And not simply the people that are in this space, but the people that have gone before us. God, speak to us. Help us to to get beyond the arrogance of thinking that we know best. But instead to rely on your word and on your history to define how we are going to continue to carry this forward to the next generation, to pass this on to the next generation. We humble ourselves. We submit to you. We submit to your authority. We submit to the voices that have gone before us and ask for you to guide us by your Holy Spirit to know what is best to carry forward. We repent, God, of the ways that we have made worship so often about ourselves and our need and our timetables. We thank you that you are God of comfort. Let us worship you as God, not simply worship your comfort. Make us into your people, God, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.